How many people here grew up with a parent, I will say probably a dad, who was always yelling at you to turn off the light? Anybody? Maybe you are that parent now. Like you go, why, why are the lights on in the basement? Nobody's in the basement. Why are the lights on in the basement? Personally, um, I don't find it that annoying. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I don't really care. You know, I leave the room, and if I know I'm coming back in a few minutes, I leave the light on, okay? Uh, now we have LEDs everywhere. I don't think it matters that much to the electric bill. My father-in-law will argue differently. and gets very upset about how many lights. I don't understand because he worked for a power company, and I said, it's job security. I'll leave all the lights on because that way you can make the power. And now he's retired, so I say, it's your pension security. Somebody was just telling me a couple weeks ago that they have those motion sensors. So they walk into the room, light comes on, walk out of the room, light goes off. You know, it's, it has almost become so much that we take it for granted, don't we? You just hit the switch, and it comes on. Switch up, light on. Switch down, light off. Unless it's a three-way switch. But we, under, we don't exactly know how electricity works, but we know that it works. And we understand that we, when there's light in the room, we're able to see. It's, and then light itself, I love this. When I remember in high school, learning about the study of light. Is it a, a wave or is it a particle? How does it operate? How does it operate into a vacuum? I always find those science questions so interesting. And the study of light is like a concept. It's, it's deep enough for an elephant to bathe in, but it's shallow enough that a child can't drown. Now, I know that saying is what I used last week when St. Augustine from the 3rd century used that saying to talk about the book of John. So John is like, we, not, we all get it, right? It's about Jesus. It's like light. You can see stuff. But when you really dig into it, you can really dig into it. You know, It's like a pool that like, it starts an inch deep and then it goes to like 100 feet deep. You could wade in it, but then also you could you could swim, you know you could snorkel in this and you could scuba dive. It's, it can get so deep, and I like that that illustration because John uses this to start off the book of John here to talk about light, and I think it fits well that Jesus is the light. And so today we're going to be looking at the first, the next few verses of the prologue. The prologue is the first 18 verses in the book of John, and he's introducing us to a man named John in these verses that were just read. But it's not the guy, John, who wrote the book of John. So that's very confusing, right? I'll get to it in a second. So this guy, John, he is the first witness to Jesus the light, challenging the world to see and receive God's adoption. That's, that's the main thing that we're going to look at here. G John is the first witness to, to Jesus the light, challenging the world to see and receive God's adoption. So first of all, how about a quick review from the beginning of the gospel? It was written by the Apostle John. Even though it was the last book written, it is the most unique. It addresses Greeks and Jews both, and it's written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose statement from John 20, 31. So it's written to convince the unbeliever to believe, and it's written to strengthen the faith of the believer to continue in their faith. And John begins his book by using the same words that we find in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. And he uses the Old Testament concept of God's work being done through his words in naming the pre-incarnate Son of God. The, he calls him the Word, or Logos is actually the word in the Greek. And the word Logos, or Word, is used in Greek philosophy as an impersonal like just concept, like reason. 
that, that they described gave order to the universe. So it's amazing how John gives personhood to that vague concept of reason, and he makes that vague concept actual a reality, a personal reality, when he says that in the beginning was he was God, and he was with God. So to illustrate this mind-blowing concept, he gives this visual aid of light. And like I, I said, we all understand light. We don't think about it, but we all understand light. Without light, things die. If the sun was to stop shining or to be blocked out for some reason from view, eventually everything would die. Yes, plants can survive with artificial light. Not real, of course, just artificial, not natural. Well, in verse 4, John says that in him there is life. So John says that light is life. Just like natural light makes things grow naturally, spiritual life, spiritual light brings spiritual life. And Jesus is the light of life. He conquered spiritual darkness once and for all with his death and resurrection. But and the, So the light that John is writing about here, if you look in verse 4, he is talking about the person of Jesus Christ. He conquered darkness and Jesus is the light of life. So we know about Jesus. We know about any historical figure because we, we read about him or people have talked about him. So we learn about a historical person from other accounts. And as the first person to give testimony of Jesus Christ at the start of his public ministry is a guy named John the Baptist. Or you might know him as John the Baptist. But I think it's so interesting here in John chapter 1. Actually, the whole book of John. You know, um, some people don't like to call John the Baptist John the Baptist. Because they say, oh, he's not like part of a Baptist denomination. Like, why are you calling him John the Baptist? So they call him John the Baptizer. To that which I say, whatever. You know, whatever floats your boat. Okay? You can call him that if you want. But what's interesting about the Gospel of John is that he never calls him John the Baptist. He doesn't. Look at verse 6. He says his name was just John, which gives evidence to the fact that the Apostle John wrote the book. Or at least some guy named John. You see, if I was talking to someone about a guy in our church, and I just said, Dave, well, you're not going to realize which Dave unless I use last names, right? But let's say there was an Eric here, and I start talking to you about Eric, you would know I'm talking about the other Eric, right? Because I wouldn't talk about my person, about myself in the third person. Well, of course here, a guy named John is writing a book, so he never has to differentiate whenever he's saying John. He doesn't have to say John the Baptist. He just says John. And I find it interesting that if he was going to give a qualifier, he probably wouldn't even call him John the Baptist. He would probably call him John the Witness. Because all these 18 verses of the prologue here, it's all about the Word and Witness. The Word and the Witness. And so I want to look at John the Witness. And if you look here, he's like we get into the, the Baptist, but like he's more of a witness. And I sent an email this week with a link to this little video from the Bible Project that does an overview of the book of John. And I find it interesting how many times the number seven appears. And I mentioned how John has these key words that you just see. You I mean, just read through a whole chapter and you'll be like, why does he keep using the same word? It must be really important, right? Well, one of them is the witness, the witness, the witness. And so that's where he's at now. Let's look at John the witness. First of all, we're going to learn about John. And then we're going to look at his message that was not received and then how it was received. 
So, first of all, he was sent. It says in verse 6. So, the prophets predicted that there would be a prophet like Elijah who would come and prepare the way of the Lord. And it appears as if John, the writer, presents John, the witness, as, as the one who's fulfilling this passage. So, like, um, one of the prophets is Isaiah. And so, I'm going to look at Isaiah. I'm going to read Isaiah 8, 20. It's a prediction here, Isaiah 8, 20. And I'm going to go all the way to uh, Isaiah 9, 2. So, um, it says here in Isaiah 8, 20, to the teaching and to the testimony... If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And so here we see these, like verse 22, you see these phrases, gloom of anguish and thick darkness. What they are doing here is he's symbolizing the covenant and the exile from the land. And then dawn in verse 20 making glorious way to the sea and the great light that we just read about in verse 1, they all symbolize what God will do for his people at the exodus and the return from exile. So John here is testifying to the restoration of God's people. And Isaiah chapter 9, that's a verse that you, a lot of times, an Old Testament prophet verse that you ought to hear at Christmas time, because it's talking about the Messiah coming, how he's going to bring a great light to the people who lived in a land of great darkness. And John is kind of, you can see, he's talking about how now he's a witness, giving a testimony, talking about the light. So he was sent, and he was sent by God. He's from God. I like to think of John as being the last Old Covenant prophet, the last Old Testament prophet. He came to preach God's word to God's people. Malachi 3.1 is a prophecy that a messenger would come, prepare the way for Israel's Messiah. And when the Messiah came, that would signal the arrival of the king and the day of the Lord that would follow, that when it was complete would be the fulfillment of God's kingdom, of the messianic kingdom that would come with this person that arrived. Well, John was the messenger, and his message was to prepare the way for the coming king. He came to prepare the way and like um, to, to be the voice of one calling in the desert. He didn't come on his own, but he came as an ambassador, as a representative to bear witness to, about the Old Testament promises about Jesus and to call people to repentance and faith. His message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John makes it clear in verse 8 that he is not the light. He says that very clearly. It's not me. Because he stood out in a crowd. I mean, he wore funny clothes, he lived in a funny place, and he ate weird food. And everybody knew about this guy, right? So he, he had to make it clear, I am not the one, okay? I am just getting ready for the one. And many years after John, you know, you look in the book of Acts chapter 19 when Paul is doing a missionary journey, he comes on to people and, and Paul says, I think it was Paul, he said, uh, do you know about Jesus? And they, they say, all we know is about the baptism of John. So in other words, the, the, the news about John had spread all over the place, sometimes even getting there 
the message I mean, getting there before the gospel about Jesus Christ got there. And a lot of people lifted up Baghdad. They're like a very minority group in Iraq who like, they consider John the Baptist as being the number one prophet. They trace their roots all the way back to like one of Noah's sons, but they don't follow Jesus. They are followers of John the Baptist. Like that is their like prophet, their final Messiah. So even today, there are people in the world who think that John was the light, that he was the one sent from God. He was sent from God, but he said, I am not the light. I'm only reflecting the light. That's who I am. He's not the source of light, but he's pointing to another. And so he was sent with a job to do. In verse 7, it says he came as a witness to bear witness, because that's what witnesses do. They give testimony. And so he is called to the witness stand in order to give specific information. And we sit like a jury needing to make a decision based on the information that we hear. And we must decide how are we going to respond to this testimony that's being given here. The idea of witness, it appears a lot here in the gospel. In fact, 47 times in John's gospel, that word witness is used. You look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's only used six times in all three of those books. So 47 times. John, like I said, remember the purpose statement of the book? He's making a point here that he's giving a witness and he's calling people to, to hear the testimony that is being spoken to and respond. So we are called to respond with the testimony, with the witness that we are being heard from John the Baptist here because he had a purpose and he had a goal in his job. He was sent, he was sent from God, he was sent with a job to do and his goal was for you to believe to believe what he is saying, to receive it. So he's on the stand to share his testimony about the light. And it makes me think our, about our own job. What are we called to do? We're not called to be light. We're called to, um, we're not called to necessarily be light, but to reflect the light. You know, I was thinking about how uh, that illustration of a light switch in your house. You know, if I was showing you around my house, you know, I wouldn't... Um, turn on a switch and say, I, I want you to notice that uh, the light is now, there's now light in the room because I turned on a switch, you know? They would look at you kind of funny. You don't need to tell somebody about the light, right, when you, when you go into a room. So why did John need to tell people about the light? Well, the 20th century Bible teacher A.W. Pink answers this question. He says, when the sun is shining in all its beauty, who are the ones unconscious of the fact? Who need to be told that it is the sun is shining? He says the blind do. How tragic then when we read that God sent John to bear witness of the light. How pathetic that there should be any need for this. How solemn the statement that men have to be told the light is now in their midst. What a revelation of man's fallen condition. So he's saying, look at this. This shows how we are completely blind, spiritually blind. We can't see the light. We don't even understand it until we are told about the light. And this is where we find ourselves. We need to hear the light and tell others about the light as well. And so John is coming. His witness or his testimony, is that's the setting that we now find ourselves for the light coming into the world. Jesus came as the light, but the world was blind and could not see it. The one who created the world was in the world, yet the world did not recognize him. It says in verse 9. Jesus made our eyes, yet we refuse to see his glory. Jesus made our ears, yet we refuse to listen to his words. Jesus made our heads, 
yet we refuse to bow before him. And John here, he illustrates what a proper witness of Jesus Christ does. He is not the light himself, but he reflects the light of Christ. That's why in chapter 5, verse 35 of John, Jesus calls him a burning, Jesus calls John the witness a burning and shining lamp. And he pointed to the fact, he, Jesus elevated John. At one point saying that no woman born of man is as great as John is. He, was a test, he gave testimony to the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And he calls us to, to respond and to be like him and to reflect the light as well. And verse 9 gives us information here about the light of Christ. It's the true light or the real, genuine light. And then verse 9 here is an echo of Isaiah 49.6. And there we read, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the, of the earth. But the sad thing is, is that too often people hear the message or, and they don't respond. They reject the message of Christ. In verse 10 it says that he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The world did not recognize him. He was rejected by the world. It says he went home. In a sense, this world, of course, is the world he created and he entered this world, but he also like went to his people. And his people did not receive him. God had chosen a special people for himself, the Jewish people. He made a covenant with them and promised that a Messiah would come and would deliver them from their sins. And yes, some were looking for the Messiah, but the majority of people and the leaders of the Jewish people, they didn't. They rejected him. And Jesus was the one who was promised and who was sent by God. And it's a tragic story, but it has a happy ending because God is still at work. It says in verse 13, at the very, very end, it says, you know, but God is still bringing people to himself. But before we dive into that final part about God and, and him working, go back here and I want to look at these three reasons why, these three wrong reasons why some people and why the Jewish people maybe, they thought that they were going to be accepted, but, but, they were reject, but they rejected the message. And it's right there in verse 13. Some people think that God saves them because of their, their racial or their ethnic background. It says, um, not of blood. Now, this could be, or not of natural descent. You see, the understanding that pervaded Judaism during the day was that, hey, we are Jewish people. We're Jews. We are going to be accepted. We are God's chosen people. And there was widespread belief that as long as you were this ethnicity, this nationality, you were going to be accepted. Even today, we tend to link religion and ethnicity as if they are the same things. It's been all throughout history, and it's the same way today. You've heard these you know, people groups like Dutch Reformed, or Irish Catholic, or Coptic Egyptians, or German Lutherans, or Saudi Arabian Muslims where culture and nationalities are united with religion. And some people think, hey, you know what? I'm an American Christian, and so I'm good. Everybody, I'm, I was born here, you know, so, and my parents always went to church, and I always went to church as a kid, and I was, you know, baptized as a baby, or I was raised up in church, or I was confirmed, or I did this class, or a lot of us think we're just good because of, because of our bloodline for lack of a better word. It's what he says right here. But that's not necessarily the case. That's not how a person is born again. That's not how we're regenerated. 
Second, some people think that God saves them because of their sincerity. It says here, not the will of the flesh. It's a picture of a man and a woman coming together with great passion to conceive a child. But no matter how passionate or sincere you are about spiritual things, you will only be saved if God draws you to himself. Just because you're passionate about something doesn't necessarily mean that you're right about it. We could be passionate about the wrong thing, even religious activity. And religious activity, even if it's a lot, it might fool some people for a long time. Maybe you might fool yourself too, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you are saved. I think of that phrase from Jesus where he says, that on the last day many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And Jesus replies to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so, just because we are passionate and have a lot of activity on the outside doesn't necessarily mean that we have a new heart. He also gives the example there of, not of the will of man either. Some people think that God saves them because of their own effort. You know, this says, uh, another translation here says that it's the will of the husband. And I think of how sometimes as a husband and a wife, they can carefully plan to have a child, right? They can schedule, they can try to schedule it out. But no one really knows for sure. No one can say for sure when they're going to get pregnant. Or You know, you could do all of the family planning that you want, but at the end of the day, the end result is ultimately in God's hands. And in the same way, no man can plan his way into the family of God. No amount of work or human effort will bring a person's spiritual life. People will only experience new birth if God regenerates them, if God gives the gift of sight to the true, uh, gives us true light. But verse 12 is the good news, it says here. This is the good news of John's message. To all who receive him, to all who believe, he gives the right to be born of God, to be called children of God. And the word that John is witnessing here calls for repentance, a response to, of the message that is being preached here. And here again, we have the word, I called the the sermon series, that you may believe. And that's because the word believe there, it it occurs over and over and over again, 98 times in the book of John. Not only that, but the word faith, according to John, is an action. We, We tend to use the word faith as a noun. You know what I'm saying? Like we say, you have faith. Like it's something that you possess, something that you can hold on to. Something that you can acquire, you know, a noun, a person, place, or thing. But John doesn't use the word that way. It's always a verb. It's always a verb. It's always an action. It's used in four main ways in John. Twelve times it refers to believing facts or reports. Nineteen times it refers to believing people or scripture. Thirty times it's used without an, an object. While thirty-six times, the most times, it's used in reference to believing in Christ. So faith is an action. And John's concern here for the dynamic nature of faith, it involves uh, more than trust or confidence in him. It's accepting Jesus of his claims, of who he claimed to be, and and then it changing our lives. And it being with us all throughout our life. Faith is just, and belief in Christ isn't just one, one time decision. But it's a journey of growth, of walking with the Lord. That's how John uses this word of faith, of belief, of being in action. Like I, I use the illustration all the time, like 
You could say, I believe in that chair, but until you sit down, there's no action of it. There's no demonstration of it. It's just empty words. It's empty talk, right? No, for us as, I mean, for us as Christians, we need to hold on to Jesus like our life depends on it. Every single day, we know that He is the one who's holding on to us. And three features here of this faith. First of all, it's for all. You know, it's sad that, God, that Jesus came to his own people. And remember, the Apostle Paul, him weeping, like, I wish my people would, would, I wish they would get it, you know? He said, if I could be a curse in order for them to be saved, I would do that. Or how Jesus, when he, he approached the city of Jerusalem in the last days of his life, he said, oh, I wish I could just gather you together like a chicken hen gathers the, wing, the chicks under their wings. Like, they were both super passionate about wanting their people group to come to Jesus, to come to a knowledge of, of salvation. But that didn't necessarily happen on a large scale. But, you know, the, the, the amazing thing about the gospel is now it's not just limited to one location or one people group. It says, to all who receive him. So we now are included in the all of all of God's people here. Not just one ethnic group, not just one social group in society, which in the Roman society, there was all about societal levels, you know, where you were at on the class ranking scale. But And it's not just for the good people. Maybe you grew up with that, and wherever you grew up, it's like, well, you know, the good people, the good kids, they go to church, right? You know, No, it's not just for the good people or a certain people from a certain area or a certain country. No, it's, just, it's for everybody. All are welcome to receive the good news, to receive Jesus. And to all of those people, we have this incredible status. We, he gives us the right to be called children of God, to become children of God. You know, um, I, I've heard a lot of people, they're trying to be nice, and I get it, they're trying to be friendly and say, like, we're all God's children. And in a way, I understand, I'll grant them the benefit of the doubt and know what they're saying and, like, Yes, God created every single one of us. And we have the image of God, the Imago Dei, that he gives us value. Every human being, every human life is valuable because we all are created by God. And we all contain the image of God. But spiritual, spiritually speaking, we are all not true children of God. Because by nature, we are sinners. And we are enemies of God. We are objects of his wrath because of our rebellion because we've turned our backs on him and we've done it you know from birth and we've done it with our own choices that we are enemies of God but when we turn from our sins and put our trust in Jesus and receive him then we can become a true spiritual true reborn born again true child of God by adoption it says in Galatians 3:26 for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith Sons of God, true sons of God through faith. So our lives are radically altered by our position in our family. We can be a bunch of nobodies who become somebodies in God's family. And we don't need to fear the future because we know we are going to our Father's house. We can stop worrying about whether our needs are going to be met, met here on earth because we know that God cares for His children and He gives good gifts to His children, what we need when we need it. And we don't need to be anxious about our retirement accounts because we know that our, our true value is in the heavenly realms. And our hope, our expectation is not in this world because someday as children of the King, 
We will shine like the sun in our Father's kingdom. God sent John the witness to testify, to give a testimony about Jesus Christ, forcing us to ask ourselves the answer to this question, will I reject Jesus or will I receive him? What will you do with Jesus today? And the final thing to say about Jesus's, about John's call to faith is that it's a work of God. Upholding every decision to believe is the foundation here of God's sovereign grace. James, he also attributes our new life to God's choice. In James 1.18, it says, By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth. Or consider 1 Peter 1.3, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So God brings us from death to life. He adopts us into his family as his true children. And I, I don't think there's a better picture of God's love and his grace and his mercy, his kindness. I don't think there's a better picture of the Christian life than that of adoption. I've read many stories and had uh, front row seats to the beauty of adoption. Whether it's an adoption from another country on the other side of the world or right down the street. The circumstances may change, but the results are always so beautiful. Families that are adoptive parents tend to celebrate what they call a gotcha day. It's the day they stand, they remember back and they say, you were born on this day, but you became part of our family on this day. My my family tends to celebrate gotcha day as well. And remember that day where they stood before a judge And the judge declares that this child is legally forever. This is, they say, this is your forever family. And that's what God has done for us. When we were unlovely, God chose to love us. He received us to himself and he gave us the right to be called his children. And we are part of God's child, part of God's forever family. What a picture of God's amazing grace pray together. God, I thank you that while we were enemies of the cross of Christ, you came and you died for us. We didn't do anything to deserve your love, but you showed your love to us. When we think of the writer of this, this, this gospel, John, what later on in his life when he was so old, he said, writing the books of First and Second and Third John, said, Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And how that truth stuck with him through his whole life. I pray, God, in the same way that those truths would stick with us as well today. That today we would receive Jesus and that all throughout our life we would always be in wonder and in awe of the truth that the love of God shines in our life so that we could be called children of God.